and I would like you, uh, I want to get us thinking uh, initially by uh, talking a little bit about fairy tales. Uh, the movie that comes to mind is Frozen. Uh, but I, I, I reckon maybe you have at times noticed the similarity between fairy tale telling and the story of Scripture. Um, the similar patterns of the stories. In most fairy tales, it involves uh, conflict between two realms, a realm of dark and a realm of light, a realm of good, a realm of evil, a cold realm and a warm realm. You name it, there's these clashing of worlds, right? It certainly finds um, an echo in Scripture. Fairy tales often depend upon um, a hero or heroine to save the day. That's certainly reflective of Scripture, of our dependency upon Christ. He is our hero. In fact, oftentimes, even in fairy tales, the, uh, the character is a foretold character. It's not uncommon in fairy tales that there's a word of prophecy that one would come in, in the fairy tales. Um, oftentimes in fairy tales, uh, the good triumphs, triumphs at the very end right as it almost looks hopeless. I think that's reflective of Scripture, that we could look around this world and whew, uh, have that feeling. There's these, these overtones. No, I certainly don't think the story of Scripture is a fairy tale. I think there's a story of redemption that kind of travels inside of people um, in kind of a, a primitive way, and it, it finds its way out. I think this is, this is the great story. But in fairy tales, where I do see some discontinuity or some breakdown is when the good finally triumphs over evil, it seems, like it's, it seems almost to me like the director forgot they had to be under two hours, and it's happening one minute before the credits roll, and so there's this kiss or this like mystical touch or a waving of a wand or a feather landing on a pond or whatever it is, this magical thing happens that explodes the world into redemption. You know, what, the gray, thorny land is, explodes into colors and the brambles turn into flowers and the bats turn into birds and... You know, the serpents turn into fish. Everything just, it's in a moment, you see it, and, and there's a glitter that falls and then spreads, almost like someone dumped a huge bucket of colorful paint on the world. It splashes, and the world becomes new. And like Frozen, I find myself going, well, how did that happen? Like, it was just a kiss. How did the whole world get better? Well, if we could say that there's similarities between the pattern of uh, uh, fairy tales and the scripture, that's one area where I go, there's no similarity there. God seems to really want you to know how that moment works. That life-giving moment that gives mankind hope that it will not always be this way that one day all things will be made new. One day God is coming to, for great reparation and restoration of the world. God seems that he does not want us to 
kind of reserve that moment of salvation for just a mystical thing, but rather that he wants us to understand it. In fact, we participate in it. And this morning, in the eighth chapter of Romans, Paul is finally putting things together. So we've been in Romans for a long time now, um, and even then we only did a portion of it. But Paul has been assembling and, and assembling and talking about pieces, and, and, and this morning he's starting to kind of push them together and make the pieces fit. And as, as we go through the eighth, part of the eighth chapter of Romans, I want, you, I want you to appreciate that God wants you to know how it works. He wants you to know how your salvation and your life in him works because we have a role to play. Okay. Let me begin then. Chapter 8, verse verse 1 is going to start with this pretty grand statement. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation. And he's it seems all the more significant because in the end of the seventh chapter, he called himself wretched. Working through the seventh chapter, Paul has been operating under this this understanding or been working with this line of reasoning, which was this, that many of the recipients of this letter had a very religious and astute and studious background in the Jewish faith, but we can understand this. We certainly can understand legalism or um, religiously observantness. And, and, but the recipients of this letter had grown accustomed to thinking that their hard work and their good deeds would account for them before the Lord. They thought that's how it works. How is it that salvation comes and endures? They would, they would have thought it comes because I did good things. And Paul spends the first part of the book of Romans saying, no, that's not how it is. Jesus alone is the hope of our salvation. But, but then it, it migrated from not the question of salvation. Like, okay, they were like, okay, so if we get Jesus saves, but then we got to roll up our sleeves and get down and we better do good works or it's another thing coming. And he said, wait a second, that's the wrong attitude there as well. He said, listen, you can't under your own steam, and and the end of the seventh chapter is him kind of autobiographically saying this. He would say, I can't under my own steam and my own power do the kinds of things that amount to righteousness before the Lord. He he complains about himself. He moans. He says, I do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things I I do want to do. The things I hate are the things I do. And no matter how much I know or how hard I try, I find I continually disappoint not only myself, but if certainly myself, then the Lord. And he ends the seventh chapter doing this. He cries out, wretched man that I am. Wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body of sin? And then the eighth chapter starts. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In other words, it's not how it works. Let me tell you how it works. Our hope comes from Christ Jesus. Only Christ Jesus. No condemnation. And this morning, I want you, if you're in Christ, you should feel so blessed and so encouraged by this scripture. Not by me, but by the words of the scripture. That God wants to say something to you. Wants to encourage you. So let me read the four verses. I'll read four verses and then we'll kind of slowly go through them together and then we'll walk Uh, through uh, portions of the rest of the chapter. Let me read 8, 1 through 4. 
There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Okay, he begins with, there's therefore now no condemnation, because someone who has a right, a right perspective of God's holiness finds the issue of sin to be troubling. How is it that I continue to sin? Where is my hope if I continue to sin? Because God's holy and in him there is no sin. And God sent Jesus to deal with sin. So if God has no sin and he sent Christ to deal with sin, and if Christ has victory over sin and yet I continue to sin, what does that mean? And Paul begins by saying, listen, it has to do with your disposition before Jesus, not whether or not you sin. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He says, the question is, are you in Christ? Do you have faith in Jesus Christ? The fifth chapter of Romans, which is really where this argument began, started this way. The first verse of the fifth chapter says, since therefore we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's almost the same thing. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's the same saying. means the same thing. That our hope, our victory comes, not by what we've done, but by what Jesus has done for us. And any conversation of how to live in this life any next step on how, how should we then therefore go on in the days and weeks of our life and live, any serious recollection of that should begin with the fact that we are ultimately justified and saved through the work of Jesus Christ. You got to start there. Anytime Paul wants to talk about this, he starts there. He says, listen, before I begin to talk about how we get holy, how we live rightly, let me tell you this. My only hope is in Jesus Christ. It is the beginning to every conversation about spiritual holiness because it postures us immediately for we haven't done the main thing. It was done for us. And Paul goes on to explain it. He says there's a new law. Like when we're in Christ, we live in a new way. The law here in the verse is a lowercase l. It's like the way or the principles of living. In other words, if you're in Christ Jesus, then you live by what he calls the Spirit. And the Spirit sets you free. And if you live in the old way, which he calls the way of sin and death here, the old way of sin and death, that was the way of what he earlier called the written code or the rules or kind of religious obedience. He says that way, the suggestion is, is not a way that's liberating or free. It's a way that is enslaving and it's suffocating. And it's always reminding you of who you're not. He says, that's not how it is. I am in Christ Jesus, therefore I live in a new way, the way of the Spirit. In fact, he says in verse 3, God has done what the law weakened by the flesh was unable to do. 
In other words, the law of God, the truths of God, all of the many pages in this book about what we should and shouldn't do and, and what God, how God wants, they're good and they're holy and they're right and they describe God and they describe his temperament and his personhood and how he would behave and how if we were to behave like God, we would behave. He's saying, nonetheless, it's weak because we're sinful. We're so sinful that we, we're too sinful to fix ourselves simply by knowing what to do. He says, we're worse off than that. So he says, God did something else. Verse three, he said, by sending his own son in our likeness who stood in the way of sin, we have hope that Jesus who had no sin carried his sin on our shoulders for our behalf so that we might have his life. There's this exchange, right? God wants you to know how it works. He doesn't want this just to be some magical moment. God wants you to know, listen, darkness was overtaking you, but Jesus has offered to stand in your place. And Jesus has borne on his shoulders the consequences of your sinfulness. And he has taken into the grave the weight of your death. And if you place your faith in Christ, you rise from the grave with his life. He says, you should know how it works. And then he says, in the fourth verse, that this work of Jesus leads us into righteous living. He says, now we can live in accordance with the requirements of the law because we walk not by the flesh, but by the spirit. So what does that mean to walk by the Spirit. What is the Spirit? So my mom was Pentecostal. My, uh, do I even have the time to do this? Maybe not. My mom, and my dad, I suppose, came, came to Christ in a Pentecostal Holy Ghost church. I mean, when I would visit southern Louisiana in this poor, tiny cinder block church, and I had an earache, I was up in the front with hands on me. You know, and there were tape cassettes sent to us with a holy word about what was going to happen. And that was my notion of the Holy Spirit for many years. Holy Spirit does crazy things. Okay? And the Holy Spirit is not really a third person in the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is kind of this thing that sits in the shady corner of the, of the, the, of the Christian life that is applied to do neat stuff. Like if I figured if I ever went and brought the gospel to Africa, maybe I would get some Holy Spirit to do a thing that would make them repent. That's not the case here. The truth of the matter is the Holy Spirit is in very nature God. It's a person of the Trinity. In fact, by the way, did you see the whole Trinity is here? For God sent his Son who enables us to walk in the Spirit. I mean, it's sitting in front of us. The Holy Spirit is a person of the Trinity with whom we walk in this life. So as we're going to talk about the Spirit, I just want to kind of deal right up front with, I'm not talking about some crazy thing or some crazy substance. I'm talking about very nature God who works in you to do things to make you who he is. Because the reality is that God is not satisfied in saving you to heaven. That's so American. I just need to get saved to heaven. God's not satisfied with that. God is satisfied in restoring you to being God-like. 
That's salvation in Scripture. Salvation in Scripture is to take someone who is not like God because of sin, save them and make them like God. Don't you see the God who is spirit sent his son in flesh so that we who walk in the flesh might receive the spirit? Don't you see that effort, that continuity of effort to raise us out of ourselves? This is what's happening is God is trying to make us live like he lives. He's trying to restore the way we think and we operate like he thinks and operates. He's not simply trying to get you to heaven. There's no room in heaven for an unchanged Christian. Heaven is for the restored. That's what it's for. Listen to the verses. Verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set your mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So Paul takes you from encouraging you, saying, listen, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ, because Jesus has stood in your place and has endured death. In fact, he has condemned death, is what the scripture says. He condemned death so that now you can live in the spirit. And then he goes on to say, well, what does it look like to live in the spirit? And he uses this phrase, sets their minds. Sets their minds. It doesn't mean simply think about. It's more like a mindful preoccupation to be absorbed in. One translator didn't actually translate set their minds. He translated absorbed. He said, for those who live according to the flesh are absorbed with the things of the flesh. That's how he chose to translate it. We might say it's the things you, it's the way you dwell on life. How do you dwell? What occupies all of this real estate all the time? It's, it's a good question. He's saying, Paul's saying, if you're in Christ, then you have the Spirit. And if you have the Spirit, then you have the mind of the Spirit. If you don't have the Spirit, your dwelling, mindful preoccupation that you dedicate your consciousness to is of the flesh. And when he says flesh, he doesn't mean just sin. He's not saying that Okay, I want to res- rescue us from this lie. He's not saying there's people who are always evil all the time with evil machinations about what are they going to do next. That's not what he means by the flesh. What he means by the flesh is they are limited in this life. Their conception and their dwelling and their preoccupation in this life is limited kind of in this plane of living. What do I see? What do I feel? What do I touch? What do I want? The dreams, the things. Their existence is limited in their human capacity. They are wholly human, entirely human. Versus the mind of the Spirit, which is not entirely human. It is of the Spirit, which doesn't dwell entirely in this plane, but it looks up. It dwells like this. So that in the past, he's saying in the past, if you didn't have it before Christ was in you, you 
your entire life was a calculus of all the pieces that were in this plane. So there's this person, this job, and this opportunity, and this, this hope, and this dream, but it all lived on this plane. He says, now that you're in the spirit, you become more and more infatuated of taking the things here up to God. So you have relationships that you care about on this plane, but you bring them before the feet of God and you say, what do you think about these relationships? And you have this job over there and maybe the job, I'm, I'm not trying to say you ought not to go to work and you ought not to work hard and you ought not to think about these things. I'm saying you ought to take the things that encompass so much of our life and bring them to the Lord. That's life in the spirit. I'm not saying that you have to become some preacher or anything like that. I'm saying in your, in your horizontal life, are you regularly reaching up to the Lord to say, what do you think about this? Or is everything just flat until you get to heaven? That cannot please God. There's no way in that. That is, that is Western consumeristic American hope for salvation with no desire for restoration. God wants to make you new. He doesn't want to take the old one up. He wants to bring the new one up. And he's the one who'll do it. See, in this, the encouragement here is, listen, this is why there's therefore now no condemnation. It's because he's saying Jesus saved you and the spirit is going to remake you. So he will do it in you if you will do it with him. The question is always, are you in Christ? Here's the encouragement in verse nine. You, however are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Paul always gives you an encouragement, and then he checks you. Watch this. You're, in the, you're not in the flesh, but you're in the spirit, if, in fact, the spirit dwells in you. Oh, I wish I knew which one. You can know. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. I love that verse because in me, I go, well, I believe in Jesus and I long for his spirit, but then there's this thought, but I continue to sin. And verse 10 says, even though the body of death continues to sin, if the spirit of God is in you, he's working to crop up life in the soil. In all of the dead decay in your life, the Lord is using it for the soil for new life. That's what he's saying. In other words, this is, this is the mindset that we so often have about the Lord is I believe in Jesus, therefore I will then work and work and work and work and work to become righteous so that I make myself presentable to him at the pearly gates when I meet Peter. And he's saying, that is not how it works. It's better. He says that when you work that way, you work and work and work and you're never quite sure and you're always worried that you're under the strat of condemnation and the reality is, is you're not doing a good job anyway. You're doing a little bit better than them, but what does that mean? Because that's not the standard. He's the standard. So why are you working and comparing yourself to them? You can't really do it. Even if you tried hard, you couldn't do it. He says the real way is you sink your faith into Christ Jesus. His spirit comes in you and then, even while in this old nasty carcass of mine that I continues to do things that are disappointing to the Lord, it says the Spirit is getting a beachhead and more a foothold and doing more and more each day to bring life out of you. You don't stop sinning to therefore do something righteous. God says, I work righteousness out of you, which ultimately changes you across the life. It's an enduring expectation of ours. In fact, listen just to the, the tense of verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, so he did it, right? If the spirit of him who's already raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, 
He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will what? Will in the future also give life to your mortal bodies to the spirit who presently dwells in you. He will do what he's currently doing. We don't need to get righteous now to be acceptable to Jesus. We need to trust in Jesus now and he will work in us to make us acceptable. That is why we say there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is why it is good to be in Christ. So how does this feel before the Lord? Five more verses. This ought to mean something as far as our relationship with the Lord. I have known many, many a religious person who has no relationship with the Lord. They've paid many alms to the lie. But what does it mean to have a relationship with the Lord? Here's what he says. He says, "This is be encouraged. This is how you'll know that the Spirit is in you. If you're in Christ, this is how you'll know it. He says, so then, brothers, verse 12, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you will put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Okay, let me just explain that real quickly. I want to be clear that a necessary expectancy of being in the Spirit is that our life becomes renewed. Good things come out. Sin starts to fade and there's change. You should see it and you should be encouraged by it. If you're in Christ, I want you to look back in your own life and see, and see change, growth. And you know, sometimes the greatest changes are in the most nuanced and sneaky of little places. There were times in my life, you know, I, there were times in my life where things were said, even on the radio, just my sense of sensitivity about the kinds of things that come out of the radio is a gift from the Lord. There's a lot of things I used to laugh at. I used to laugh at weakness all the time. That's what strong people do. They laugh at weakness. It makes them feel, maybe that's what weak people do to make them feel stronger. I did it. Oh, look at that. <laughs> Sucker. I don't do that as much anymore. I'm less funny because things are less funny. That's the spirit landing in you. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, if you're in the spirit, your life is going to look different. You should know it. So if you're sitting here perfectly, I want you to be encouraged. But if you're like, oh, just be encouraged, but you're like, my life hasn't changed, then be discouraged. There is change coming. But listen to the relationship. Verse 14. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. That means the spirit inside of us says, you're loved. You're loved by God. And if children, then we're heirs, verse 17, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. In the city of Rome, Some people think that almost half the city, some estimate more than half the city were slaves. Half the city was a slave. Just to keep the elite few in enjoyment. Not only that, but they had a profound appreciation for the role of adoption. In Roman law, 
true adoption, restored someone, brought someone into the family, it wasn't like there was a tear, like the blood son and then the adopted son. Adoption gained full, absolute, unmitigated rights of sonship. Everything was the same. So much so that there was an emperor, a Caesar, who adopted a son to make him emperor. You can't even imagine that. Like in, in, in the English kings, of take going outside your bloodline saying, you know what, I'll make him. It was Nero. Nero became, was an adopted son who became Caesar. You could adopt somebody in and they would immediately have the family ring and the seal and all the privileges that went. So can you imagine this letter going to a church that might be half slave to a people that certainly understand the weight and compass and gravity of adoption, saying God has adopted you out of slavery to be not just a son, but an heir, not just an heir, but a co-heir with Christ. Think of the language there. It's not God, Jesus, you. It's God and his children of whom Jesus is his firstborn. I, don't even, I mean, I gotta tell you, I, I cannot... I cannot faithfully preach that. It is beyond my capacity. Just to say it, I wonder, am I saying something heretical? To declare that we are co-heirs with Christ. So big. But it's true. You know, and some of you may not have a good example of fatherhood, so maybe this is like, I don't, I don't even know what to do with a good father. A good father loves his son, Sons and daughters, provides for them, teaches them, shows them the way of truth, gives them provision, guides them, disciplines them in the way of life, has the right hopes and dreams for them, paves the way for their good and not their harm, stands in and protects them when they need protection. That is God. That's the kind of father he is. And he's saying, listen, in the old way, when you were working in the flesh, trying to strive and make yourself good enough, you were like a slave to the rules. He says, in Christ, you have been brought into a family. Where we have the spirit, where we can turn to the Lord as though we were his sons and daughters and speak to him with that confidence. Verse 16, the spirit of him bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Here's one of these checks. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. If you're in Christ, then you have the spirit. And if you're in the spirit, then you will progressively and continually be strengthened to become more like Christ. And if that's the case, you will find yourself suffering with, the, with and for and in the Lord throughout your life at times. In two different ways. Sometimes you could think of it this way, that suffering comes to us all, right? The rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. Suffering comes to us all. What I find is for some people, when suffering lands, they feel that they're not with the Lord. Why, like, is the Lord doesn't go into Christiana Hospital, waits in the parking lot. The Lord doesn't go into divorce court. Or the Lord doesn't go into school, right? In places where there's suffering sometimes, we think, why am I out here suffering alone? And part of this verse reminds me of, 
You're suffering with Christ. Christ is with you in this. He never left you. On the other side of that is this notion of suffering for Christ, with him in the sense of as you become more and more like Christ, you will become less and less like the world, and that may cost you something, cost you something in this momentary thing we call life. Great gain from the Father. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He has rescued us. His spirit is in us, remaking us, making us new, making us walk in the spirit, and he's calling us sons and daughters of the Most High. I'm gonna pray, and as I pray, it's your time to respond to the Lord. All I'm gonna do is read, I'm gonna read what we've read this morning. I'm gonna read chapter eight, one through 17, and then give you a few seconds to respond to the Lord. And I want you to listen as I read. I want you to find the places where maybe your faith is weak or unchanged or needs to be encouraged from the word of God, not from a mouth of men, but from the word of God, just to hear what he says, just on top of you and to, and to build you up. So bow your heads, please, and let me pray. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him.
Lord, I pray you would make this so in us. Redeem our bodies, Lord. Make us new. Give us confidence, Lord, in your love and in the work of the Spirit, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.